The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 9. It has been uh, a joy, I know, for all of us to be encouraged and challenged by Dr. Curry's preaching over the past month. Now as we come to August, we're going to be returning to our series uh, in the book of Hebrews, and we left off right at the beginning uh, of chapter 9. As you're turning there, just a brief review as to what we've been hearing and learning in Hebrews We've learned that Hebrews is a letter written to uh, Jewish believers who have been tempted to return to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament way of worship, and so abandon Christ and the salvation that he has accomplished for his people. And so the author of Hebrews has been taking us on a tour of the high points of the Old Testament and showing how Christ is superior to each of those elements. We saw that Christ is far superior to the angels who ministered in the Old Covenant. We saw that Christ is greater than Moses, that Christ uh, offers a better rest than Joshua in the Promised Land. And then uh, for the last four chapters, uh, the author of Hebrews has been describing how Jesus is a better high priest. And we're still in the midst of that discussion of Jesus as the better high priest after the order or in the likeness of Melchizedek, uh, because he is a high priest over a better covenant with better promises. Now, as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, the author is continuing this argument that Jesus is a better high priest. And for the next three weeks, or for the next chapter and a half of of Hebrews, the author is going to focus on Jesus' sacrifice of his own blood and talk about the ways that Jesus' sacrifice is a better sacrifice. Now, as you think about that, maybe you think, wow, three weeks and a chapter and a half to talk about how Jesus' sacrifice of his own blood is better than a sacrifice of a goat or a bull. Maybe that seems kind of obvious. But what we're going to see in the next few weeks, imagine the author of Hebrews holding up the gem, the precious gem of Christ's sacrifice of his own blood and the salvation he secures and sort of turning that gem face after face, facet after facet, and examining the beauties and glories of Christ's sacrifice one aspect at a time. That's what we'll be joining the author of Hebrews or or reading and, and seeing over the next few weeks. So this morning, would you read with me chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, as we look at the first facet or face of the gem of redemption through Christ's blood. Hebrews 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the presence, bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant 
covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself in the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words which hold up the beauty and glory of Christ's sacrifice of his blood. Encourage our hearts in him this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Back in May, my family and I took a trip to Washington, D.C. And if you travel around Washington, D.C., it doesn't take you long to realize that you can't really travel anywhere in the city without facing security. I found it somewhat ironic that in order to see butterflies in the Natural History Museum, you have to go through a metal detector and a bag check. But you go anywhere, any one of the museums, and you're faced with uh, security. The Museum of the Bible has a new state-of-the-art security system uh, before you go in. But of course, um, None of this uh, is compared to the level of security surrounding the White House. Around the White House, you have a black fence that guards the grounds. And of course, you can't go up to the black fence. There's security guards around it, and you have to be on the other side of the sidewalk, on the other side of the street behind the black fence from the White House. And there's one main entrance to the White House, and there are security guards. Uh, It's heavily guarded. I saw a bomb-sniffing dog check out one car as it went in, and Of course, even if you do get past that, you're still going through tremendous security to come into the presence of the president. And I think as you look at the White House, the message of all that security is quite clear. You and I do not have free access into the White House. Of course, if you know the right people or if you accomplish something particularly significant, you might be invited to come in. But even if you're invited to come in, the security measures you have to go by still send the message. We do not have free access into the presence of the president. Well, in a passage from Hebrews 9 this morning, the author is demonstrating the first reason that Jesus' sacrifice of his blood is so superior to the sacrifices of the old covenant. 
And the first reason all comes down to access. Access into the presence of God. I think we can boil the main point of these verses down to one sentence, and it is this. Christ has entered the very presence of God, and he has secured our access to God's presence with him by perfectly purifying our conscience through his blood. Christ has entered the very presence of God, and he has secured our access to God's presence with him by perfectly purifying our conscience with his blood. And the author is going to make this point by comparing the system of worship in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, with what Christ accomplishes in his sacrifice. Let's look first in verses 1 through 10 at the worship of the tabernacle as the author describes it. And the author takes the first eight verses to describe the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the duties of the priests. And this author would have been giving a brief review of these things for his reader who would be fairly familiar with these things. But for those of us who are less familiar, maybe we can take a minute to go on a brief audio tour, if you will, of the tabernacle and its worship. If you were an Israelite living in the wilderness around the tabernacle and you were going to approach the tabernacle, the first thing you would see as you approached it was a white curtain surrounding an outer court or an outer area that surrounded the uh, the tabernacle itself. The white tent in the outer court area, 75 feet by 150 feet long, And if you think about our sanctuary here, it's just about 75 feet in width and about 120 feet long. So imagine just a a little bit bigger area than our sanctuary. And you can imagine the outer court of the tabernacle. And as you step through the curtain into this outer court, you would be immediately confronted by a large bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice. And this is as far as the Israelite could go. Unless they were a priest, uh, over 90% of the people of Israel could not go any further than the few steps inside the outer court at the bronze altar. Now, if you were a priest, uh, you could proceed past the altar and you'd come to a wash basin where the priests would wash themselves so that they would be cleansed for service in the tabernacle. And then you would come to the tabernacle proper, the tent of the tabernacle itself. It was about 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. So if you look at the platform uh, up here, you would see just about the size. It'd be a little longer, about the same width as the platform here. That's the tabernacle itself. And if you go into what Hebrews calls the holy place, there the priests would minister by keeping the lamps of the lampstand lit and keeping fresh bread, bread of the presence, on the table in this uh, holy place of the, of the tabernacle. But as you passed the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence, you would come to the most holy place. And in front, uh, that, that was guarded by a curtain, a curtain which would separate off this most holy place from even the holiness of the tabernacle. In front of the curtain was the altar of incense, where incense was burned before the presence of the Lord on a daily basis. And behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim and the mercy seat, where God had promised that his presence would dwell. But behind that curtain, to the holy presence of God, even the priests were not permitted to go. Only the high priest, and only one time a year, could he enter into the holy place, the most holy place, the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews immediately reminds us of why God's holy presence must be off limits 
to human beings. If you look at verse 9, we find out that even the ceremonies and sacrifices may deal with washings and regulations, and they may be able to temporarily and ceremonially cleanse a person, but they have no ability to actually perfect or cleanse the heart and the conscience of a worshiper. And without a cleansed heart and conscience, there can be no free access into the presence of a holy God. And this was, of course, the consistent message of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, ever since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Mankind had dwelt in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, but after they sinned, mankind no longer had access to life in God's presence. And two flaming cherubim were placed in front of the Garden of Eden to prevent their entry back into the presence of God forever. Of course, maybe you think of Mount Sinai when God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai and God tells Moses, place boundary markers around the mountain. No one may cross those boundary markers and touch the mountain for my holy presence is there and anyone who crosses those boundary markers will die. And the temple and the tabernacle both have the curtain blocking off the most holy place, the holy of holies. For Israel, both their history and and the daily, uh, the daily rhythm of their worship reminded them of the great chasm that existed between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind. The thing that separated them, their sin from the presence of God, even as they continued to hope in God's promise that he would one day provide a way for his people back into his presence. Now, I think it's important, as as the author of Hebrews describes the tabernacle and describes how the message of the tabernacle here is that the way into God's presence is not opened, it's important for us to remember that the tabernacle is not a negative thing. It's not an obstacle to God's presence. In fact, no man had any right to come into the presence of God, and yet lest they die. And yet in the tabernacle, God graciously gave the people of Israel an opportunity for their representative, the high priest, to come into his presence once a year with blood in order to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. That is a profound blessing. And yet even in the access that God did grant through the tabernacle, the message was still clear. Free access to God's presence is still off limits while Israel waits for God to bring about the promised new covenant. Well, having reviewed the tabernacle worship, the author of Hebrews goes on in verses 11 through 14 to show how much better is the blessing given by the new high priest, Jesus. Jesus enters the very presence of God on our behalf, offers a sacrifice of his own blood, and so opens our access into the presence of God. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says that when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he did not enter the earthly tabernacle like the earthly high priest. For Israel, there was an earthly tabernacle that pictured or represented God's presence. And the high priest went there, but Jesus did not enter an earthly tabernacle. Jesus, as the high priest of the good things to come, enters the actual presence of God. He enters the real heavenly presence of the holy God. And Jesus also brings blood, but not the blood of a bull or a goat. Jesus comes with the offer of his own blood. In the old covenant, the high priest was allowed into God's presence once a year 
and offered the blood of an animal and secured forgiveness of sins until next year. But as verses 12 and 13 tell us, if the blood of a baby cow could make one clean for a year, how much more will the precious blood of the eternal Son of God, of Jesus the Messiah, purify our conscience from dead works to serve before the living God forever and so secure for us eternal redemption, eternal cleansing, and eternal access into the presence of the Holy God. And so it was, you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus sheds his blood, dies on the cross, and declares that it is finished, the curtain, the thick curtain blocking off the Holy of Holies in the temple, rips in half. It tears in two from top to bottom. Why? Because Jesus, by his blood, has opened access to God. And the temple now, the earthly copy, declares that reality that access to God's presence is now open through the blood of Christ. Now, you and I sit here in a sanctuary in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We go about our daily routines in the week, grocery shopping, doing office work, and maybe it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what exactly does it mean to say that in Christ's blood we now have access into the holy presence of God. Access into the White House is pretty tangible. We know what that means and what that looks like. What does it mean for us that we now have access into the presence of God? What difference does that make for us on a daily basis? And I think it means two things. First, in our lives now, it means that we can freely come into God's presence, into the presence of the Holy God in prayer and in worship through Christ's blood in a way that would be impossible without Christ. See, Ephesians 2, 18, that says, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We don't have to go through a temple or through priests. As you came through the doors of the sanctuary this morning, no bronze altar stopped you and said, you may go no further. No curtain hung between us and the presence of God saying, you dare not presume on the holiness of God, do not come any closer. That was not there, because in Christ's blood we have been welcomed freely into the presence of God. And yet it is so easy for us to forget what a blessing this is. And I think there are many reasons why it's easy for us to forget this blessing. At times, we forget it because we take our time of worship and our opportunity to pray too lightly. We forget that in worship and in prayer, we tread on holy ground. We come into the presence of the one who said to Moses, take off your sandals, you are on holy ground. But we are welcomed to do so. We are welcomed in prayer and in worship to come into his presence because of Christ and the offer of his blood. Sam Storms put it this way in his classic book on prayer. He said, to think that God beckons us to make request of him And he has gone so far as to make the sacrifice of his son in order to make it possible is beyond the scope of human imagination. And yet here we are, week after week, moment after moment, able to worship our God in his presence. Brothers and sisters, may we treasure this immense privilege of prayer and of worship every time we come to it. I think another reason we forget the blessing of our access into God's presence is just because we're used to it. 
our routine of waking up on a Sunday morning and coming into church or of praying before dinner or before we go to bed just seems like a ritual we do. It's what we do every day or every week. I think about it maybe this way. In, in America, we have so many freedoms and privileges. On a daily basis, my guess is most of us don't think about how many freedoms we have here in America. It's economic success, our ability to do the things we want to do. We take it for granted because this is just where we've lived. But go across the hall to one of our refugees and ask them what it is like to move to America and experience the freedoms and opportunities we have. And suddenly we remember what we've been given. As Christians, the same can be true. We're used to this language of come to worship, come to pray. We have access to God. But compare our access into the presence of God through Christ with any other situation. Compare that to those who do not know Christ. Compare it to Israel as they waited for the promises of Christ. And what we have is overflowing blessing that we are beckoned into the presence of the Holy God. So I pray that we would never forget this blessing that we have to come into God's presence. That's the first thing that access to God's presence means. But then, of course, secondly, there's also the future access we have into God's presence. We have been invited to dwell with God forever in Christ. There's a well-known Stanford psychiatrist, Irvin Yalom, and Yalom once said that the inevitability of death And the essential meaningless of all of life, meaninglessness of all of life, including its pleasures, because it ends in death, is the driving fact of every person's existence and the root problem to be dealt with in all counseling. The problem of death and the resulting meaninglessness of everything, even life's pleasures, because of the inevitability of death, is this driving force of every person's existence and the root problem to be dealt with in all counseling. That's what Yalom said. And guess what? Apart from Christ, Yalom is right. Because apart from Christ, we have no hope of access to God. And death is inevitable. But Christ, by the sacrifice of his blood, secures for us an eternal redemption, verse uh, 12 says. Christ, by the sacrifice of his blood, secures for us eternal cleansing from sin and an invitation to dwell in the awesome glory of God's presence with him forever. And we're invited to dwell not at a distance, not separated, not banned from him, but with him, drawn near as sons and daughters because of Christ's blood. And while, yes, that hope is still future, it is still to come, that hope changes everything now about who we are and how we think and what we do and the purpose of our lives. In Christ, we have been granted access to God. What a perfect text to meditate on as we come to the Lord's table this morning. He has washed us with his blood and has brought us near to God. And that's what the Lord's table signs and seals for those who come to it in faith in Christ. But before we close, let me make one note of application from verse 14. Look at how verse 14 ends. We're told that Christ, by the offer of his blood, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice that Christ doesn't just save us from a conscious conscience stained by dead works, but Christ saves us to serve the living God. You think of the priests who were given the opportunity to serve in the presence of God in the tabernacle. That has been what we are called to do now in Christ, given the opportunity to serve in the presence of the living God. 
When Christ secures eternal redemption for us, brothers and sisters, don't think that he just offers a cheap grace that covers over sin, whatever it is, whenever it is, and leaves us at that. Christ purifies us from dead works to serve the living God. And here's how John Calvin puts it. John Calvin said, we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6 puts the same point this way. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Titus 2 puts it this way. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see what the common thread is amongst all of these verses? Jesus purified us so that the natural outflow of our life should be joyful service of God to the glory of God. Not so that a life of self-focus or success or apathy will turn out okay in the end. Maybe we could put the question for us this way. Do we as God's people consider serving God another thing that has to be added to our schedule? Or is it part of the definition of who we are? Is it something that naturally comes out of our life since we have been cleansed, purchased, and redeemed by Christ's blood? Or maybe we could ask it this way. Do we consider serving God something extra or bonus that shows that we really care about Jesus and his people? Or is serving God an incredible privilege, a delightful duty that is part of who we are having been cleansed by Christ. As you answer these questions, let me end by returning to the point the author of Hebrews is making. Christ is so superior to everything else. So do not neglect Christ. Do not fall away from Christ. Do not try to find your acceptance in anything other than Christ. Christ is the great high priest. Christ has cleansed our conscience from sin. Christ has granted us access into the presence of God. Christ has secured eternal redemption for us by the sacrifice of his blood. Christ has redeemed us from dead works to serve the living God. So let us cling to this great redemption we have through Christ's blood. Let's pray. Oh, Father... What you have given us in Christ's blood is so far superior to anything we could dare to hope for apart from your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the offer of his blood by which he secures for us eternal redemption. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, may we be reminded and encouraged and built up in the joy of our salvation in Christ. We thank you. Amen.